I'm Megan Rosenthal. And I'm Alexis Lee. And this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Mayo Lab Podcast. And for those of you watching, Yes, this is a new environment. We are in Jackson, Mississippi at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and have just a great day ahead of us. Um, And this is one of two episodes that will be brought to you from this UMMC campus. So um, we're we're excited to change it up a little bit this year. Um, But we are joined today with Dr. Bardwaj, or we will call him Dr. B from now on. Um, And he's going to talk to us a little bit about alcoholic being alcoholic, alcoholism, kind of that's in the stigma around that. Um, so we are very excited. Thank you for joining us today. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Um, if you could just give us a little overview of your background, um, your current work kind of in the center, um, the CID or CEDA, CEDA, um, go into that a little bit here because um, that's a new center too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, again, as I said, pleasure to be here. Um, I've been at University of Mississippi uh, Medical Center for about five years now. Uh, came here in 2018. Um, I am a psychiatrist by training uh, and did an additional one year of addiction fellowship. So I'm a board certified addiction psychiatrist. Um, I am on faculty here uh, at UMMC in Department of Psychiatry. Um, I'm an associate professor and also um, the medical director for the CEDA, which is a new center, uh, as you mentioned. It stands for Center for Innovation and Discovery in Addictions. Uh, This is a fairly new center. Uh, The idea behind the center is to bring um, the clinical research um, and education arms all uh, Mm -hmm. below one umbrella. Um, And we're trying to have more collaborations, interdepartmental collaborations, Um, you know, obviously different types of people ranging from Mm -hmm. physicians to researchers, um, uh, educators, uh, everyone under the same umbrella. So that's Mm -hmm. the idea behind CETA. Um, It does, um, I, as part of the CETA, I'm also uh, directing the outpatient clinic, which is the addiction clinic, um, which is the clinical arm uh, of CETA. And the clinic is located in the psychiatry clinic in Flowood. Okay. Um, that's our main location. Um, so that's the um, the work that I do at UMC. Uh, outside of here, I'm also a medical director for rehab in Brandon, which is uh, defining wellness. Uh, and I do that part-time, okay. uh, providing inpatient rehab services over there. So just trying to provide as many services as we can. I love it. And I'm so excited because I know your breadth of knowledge is going to be so just educational. I know for me, um, and I'm particularly excited in a strange way about this episode, um, alcoholism runs in my family. Um, and so I have just really dug into this and really gotten to know a lot. And just with the help of people like Megan, kind of giving me insight and background. So, um, if you will, and kind of tell us the actual definition of kind of what being an alcoholic is or alcoholism, um, in the actual formal sense. Sure. Um, You know, it's much broader at this point, you know, when we talk about alcoholism, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, we've come a long way uh, from just uh, from semantic to now having a scientific, you know, Mm -hmm. ideas about what this stands for. Um, You know, we don't even like to use the term, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. and we're talking Mm -hmm. about stigma here and probably a lot, uh, you know, moving forward. Um, That term itself can sometimes be, you know, pejorative. Mm so what we know now is um, alcoholism overall uh, can be classified as a severe alcohol use disorder, mm-hmm. which is a more 
uh, DSM diagnoses, yes. which is a diagnostic and statistical manual of psychiatric disorders. And that's our main diagnostic book. Um, and what that basically entails is, um, you know, struggling with alcohol and even similar to other substance use disorders, um, with uh, having difficulty quitting, stopping, having a functional impairment, unable to, you know, perform the, your responsibilities, um, having, you know, some form of consequences uh, from the alcohol use, uh, and potentially also developing physiological symptoms mm -hmm. of tolerance and withdrawal. Mm -hmm. So uh, it encompasses a lot of these symptoms that mm -hmm. we know from the four domains in the DSM criteria. Yeah. So yeah. that's pretty much what alcohol is. The formal definition yeah. would be the severe alcohol use disorder. Mm -hmm. Um you know, alcoholism per se is, um, you know, can be more abstract to understand. You know, it stands, mm -hmm. uh, it might have a different meaning for different people. Um, for some, it might be just, you know, not being able to, you know, stop drinking. And for others, it might be just going through the, the hardships mm -hmm. associated with the alcohol use, getting a DUI or, you know, struggling with family mm -hmm. situations or just having a medical issue mm -hmm. from long-term alcohol use. Mm -hmm. So it might mean different for different people. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why it's important to understand, you know, we're going into more scientific mm -hmm. terms uh, to be able to uh, sort of focus on what's, you know, severe, what's less severe, and how do we get more people into treatment. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people don't understand that range of spectrum. And I know I haven't until recently understood the severities of different parts of it. And so I grew up knowing an alcoholic or functional alcoholic and how these things, just the stigma around it that unfortunately I still had up until recently. And just being able to understand how would you suggest people start digging into this topic and this specific use disorder because it is so broad? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's a great question. Uh, you know, stigma has long been an issue in addiction. Um, and it's not just the stigma from outside, it's stigma from inside too. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people themselves um, are either ashamed or scared to get help. And when you look at the data out there, um, if you have 100% of the people who are having a substance use disorder, only 11% out of those actually get any treatment or help. So that shows that there's such a huge uh, discrepancy in what people understand about their own substance issues, especially you know alcohol use, which can come with a huge amount of stigma. Um, but also that you know we need people from outside to be able to understand the family members, you know, to understand what that entails and be able to help provide the support that the patient needs. Um, a good place to start would be to have a simple conversation uh, with your close ones, you know, about with your family members, with your doctor, um, you know, that you have a problem. And, you know, it might be as simple as just communicating what's going through your, you know, your day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, struggles with alcohol. And being able to get help, uh, the right help, can go a long way. So, I want to circle back for just a second mm -hmm. on to, on a on a your reference to the DSM five and the kind of clinical definition and understanding that that has been an evolution over time. So, mm -hmm. substance use disorder, as we understand it clinically right now, hasn't always had that same level of understanding. 
even within the the clinical world, let alone kind of in the public and the general sphere. So would you would you be able to talk, kind of talk us through how this has evolved over time? Because I think that it also leads us to some other kinds of stigma that we'll dig into in a minute mm-hmm. as it relates to providers and conversations with our healthcare providers. And is that feel safe to somebody who might be struggling with alcohol use? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a great question too. And, you know, we've learned um, about alcohol use disorder over the last, you know, 10, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, as you might remember, DSM-4 had two different diagnoses, um, alcohol abuse and alcohol dependence. Mm-hmm. Um, and those two were now merged um, as alcohol use disorder in DSM-5. Um, there are a couple of reasons why that was done, you know, obviously to remove stigma, because mm-hmm. those terms can be quite stigmatizing. Right. Uh, but also um, to sort of make it more easy um, for providers to make a diagnosis mm-hmm. and be able to catch people who are at risk mm-hmm. of developing severe disorders over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look at the criteria, there are 11 different criteria in DSM-5, mm-hmm. and you only need two hmm. to make a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder. Interesting. So that allows, you know, a, a provider to make a quick diagnosis and be able to refer patients mm-hmm. to treatment. That's mm-hmm. the philosophy of SBIRD, you mm-hmm. know, that, mm-hmm. that is uh, taught, you know, uh, screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. So it goes a long way in identifying more people and being able to provide treatment. Um, so it, it certainly has helped, you know, uh, reduce the stigma associated with even making a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also, uh, you know, an issue with those two terms, um, abuse and dependence, you know, they were thought to be two distinct entities mm-hmm. where abuse was not um, a, a big of an issue, mm-hmm. though it was kind of seen as something, you know, that was not appropriate. But at the same time, dependence was thought to be the main problem. And until you met the criteria for dependence, you really didn't need treatment per oh, se. Okay. So again, we're moving away from that dichotomy to to have just one scientific definition sure. under which we can make a diagnosis. Right, right. I think that's really interesting and kind of shows the evolution of our knowledge and understanding over time. And I, I until I entered into this world and, and began you know, learning more from experts like you and other experts in this field, from the outside looking in, it kind of seems simplistic, right? Like either you have a problem or you don't have a problem or you're this or this. But the reality is, is that, you know, these things evolve and our understanding and our knowledge evolve over time. Um, And so it feels kind of like a little bit of a moving target from the outside looking in, if you're not in that space, kind of like up to your eyeballs in it all day long. And so the other thing I, I started, I thought about as you were speaking, you know, that kind of the idea of self-stigmatization or self kind of questioning about whether or not this is actually maybe a problem or if I am suffering in this, what are some of the more common explanations or stigmas that individuals feel about themselves when they're kind of working towards the idea of getting into treatment and, and then ultimately hopefully recovery? Right. Well, uh, again, that's that's another you know good question because uh, uh, the, the lot of times there is fear of failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that drives um, the shame mm-hmm. um, uh, and you know le- uh, lack of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be huge in, in patients who are struggling with alcohol use or any substance use disorder, for mm-hmm. that matter. And um, that fear of failure, not being able to you know make it on the other side, mm-hmm. um, drives this uh, understanding that, that what's the point of getting help? Mm-hmm. And um, that is the kind of stigma that by you know, the patient feel themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, not, you know, th- there's this understanding that when you try to get help, more people, 
you know, in the healthcare will know. And it, with the electronic medical records, you know, there's this um, fear that once that diagnosis pops up on your system, it's going to last forever. Right. Um, so that's another fear uh, mm -hmm. if there's somebody who has a lot of stakes mm -hmm. in, in keeping maintaining the sobriety, but mm -hmm. also not letting other people around them know mm -hmm. that they, they're actually struggling with alcohol right. use disorder. Right. Um, so, the, you know, again, coming from, you know, the old times to new times, there are newer reasons why the stigmas have changed over time. Mm -hmm. But the main reasons still are, you know, the the society, uh, the peers, um, looking at them in a different way, um, having that family um, sort of dynamic that changes with they share about their alcohol use, mm -hmm. um, you know, how they're perceived, um, lack of self-esteem, um, just this idea that they themselves are unable to quit successfully mm -hmm. by themselves mm -hmm. and needing that external help to do it right. can actually take people down significantly. And I think I think that's a really important observation that, that folks may not have a great appreciation for. This idea, because I think what, and please correct me if I'm misinterpreting this, but where you're talking about this idea of willpower. Like if I, if I mm -hmm. want to quit, I should be able to quit. And that if I don't have the capacity to do that, suddenly I, I run into this idea that, well, I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy enough or all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that idea of, you know, the reality of willpower and it's potential or capacity to actually do the thing that we think it's supposed to do, right? Right. So, so yeah, that, that's important, um, you know, part of treatment, to be honest. And um, when we look at how we approach uh, the issue of substance use treatment mm -hmm. with patients, um, the patient's motivation to get help is very important. Mm -hmm. um, I, we, we see this a lot, you know, patients show up in the clinic and some people do not have an idea why they're there. Mm -hmm. And that can be very challenging because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're not uh, we're not trying to twist people's minds or trick them into getting help. Um, what we're trying to do is actually see if the patient is at a stage or a place where they're ready to make the change. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of the motivational interviewing spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. You uh, want to approach the patient, give them the full autonomy to be able to make a decision and collaborate with them mm -hmm. to, to get to the goal that they have, they want to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, for that, you know, you have to make sure the patient is willing mm -hmm. and ready to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, th that part of the willpower that we talk about, that can be, you know, in different shapes or forms. Mm -hmm. um, it could be just the patient has something uh, that is driving the change. Mm -hmm. You know, they have things at stake. Maybe it's the family. Maybe it's the job. Maybe mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, just their own self-esteem that's mm -hmm. driving the change. Um, so that is important, mm -hmm. but not the only thing needed mm -hmm. for treatment. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. And when we look at patients, when we tr start try to talk to them, we see if they're... Um, Anywhere there on that spectrum from, you know, pre-contemplation mm -hmm. to making that action stage mm -hmm. where they're ready to make the change. Right. So, um, so yes, I would say uh, having willpower is important, uh, but that helps drive treatment mm -hmm. uh, over long term for sure. Right. And I think what I hear you saying there is that willpower is not, it's a, an important component, but not the only component, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a place to begin, but mm -hmm. then there are other interventions and supports that, that folks need oftentimes Absolutely. to be successful in that, in that space. One of the other things that that I kind of broadening out from kind of that individual sphere is talking through what are the what is the what are the stigmas or what are the concerns that patients have as it relates to their family sphere is that 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 gets out because um, our audience for this podcast are, are parents and families of, of you know students and different 
walks in their lives and you know obviously they have larger communities around them what are some of the things that you have seen in your practice directly or heard from your patients related to the the feelings of inadequacy and shamefulness related to alcohol use um, from family members or close peers sure so you know there there is a lot of research out there and uh, one of the um, you know reviews that I read recently were looking at how people perceive uh, alcohol use disorder versus other mental illnesses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you know now we know uh, any substance use disorder even alcohol use disorder is a chronic disease mm-hmm. so we want to perceive it or see it as a chronic disease mm-hmm. model mm-hmm. Um, however that's not the case uh, for a lot of people right. and uh, when they looked at um, data from different countries um, this was a sort of multi-site um, multi-country uh, research um, and they saw how people perceived um, schizophrenia versus uh, substance use and they think both are part of the mental illness spectrum, um, majority of the people were able to identify schizophrenia as a huge mental illness, Mm -hmm. but only less than 30% or, you know, close to, you know, 40% um, identified alcohol use as anything to do with a mental illness. So as you can imagine, um, you know, there is certainly a lack of understanding Mm -hmm. of how these processes work. And I don't blame you know, family members for that. I mean, it's something we are still learning mm-hmm. as we're going. Um, but at the same time, I think more education, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, helping work with the families together mm-hmm. as part of the treatment plan mm-hmm. and not just only seeing the patient as the point of, you know, um, the person who needs to be worked on sure. uh, can go a long way in helping develop a successful treatment plan. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, uh, there are multiple uh, avenues that, that can be done. Um, you know, uh, as you all know about Alcohol Anonymous, mm-hmm. um, there's Al-Anon, mm-hmm. uh, similar to that, that right. provides, you know, information for family members mm-hmm. to learn how to deal with, you know, family members who have alcohol use mm-hmm. issues. Um, and there are other alliances like NAMI uh, that can help provide more support into understanding how to handle patients or who have mental illness mm-hmm. uh, from a family perspective. So a lot of resources are mm-hmm. out there to understand some of these issues. And I, would you be able to? Because I think one of the one of the understandings, if I think back to when I was younger, that we didn't, I didn't necessarily have a good appreciation of at that time, is is that substance use disorder is a chronic illness, right? Mm-hmm. Just like diabetes, just like hypertension, just like how can if you were to going to be explaining, you know, and we because one of the things of this season is to is ideas for this season of the podcast is really to get into the weeds on things so that we can explain the mechanism of action and how things function to people in a way that they can understand and appreciate. So if we're going to talk about alcohol or substance use disorder as, um, as a disease, a chronic disease, what is a good way to explain that to folks that are listening so that they have an appreciation for like, this is a chronic disease, like any other chronic disease that we maybe have more exposure to? Right. Um, so that's a great question. And what I'm going to start with is, um, you know, over the last, I guess, couple of decades, mm-hmm. we now know what's happening in the brain. Um, certainly, uh, you know, we meant, we talked about willpower being mm-hmm. uh, the main issue. <clears throat> At some point, it was thought to be the only problem with the person. Mm. <clears throat> but now we know um, that it's not just that. There's actually, you know, changes in the brain that are happening over time. So when you start using a substance or alcohol, um, gradually your reward system is working over time. Mm-hmm. And because of the overtime that it's doing, um, there's actually changes happening in the brain which are very neuroplastic. So they're happening over time. Mm -hmm. And um, what that leads to is uh, the the areas of the brain start to get 
different. You know, mm-hmm. they start to get modified, mm-hmm. um, and the circuits are starting to form where um, you're not even thinking before actually using. You're just kind of having that compulsive nature of mm-hmm. use. Um, and now we know that there are actually three stages uh, of development of addiction over time. You know, one is obviously experimenting state and a second one is a withdrawal phase and the other one is a compulsive phase Mm -hmm. where the person is using it more compulsively. And all of these stages are driven by, you know, underlying, um, you know, neuronal changes and neuroplastic changes Mm -hmm. that are happening in the brain. So it's all, uh, you know, a disease process. Mm -hmm. It's not just something that, you know, person just wants to do it at some point it becomes a pathological process which is driving the whole issue which i think is fascinating so you're like actually changing the physical structures in Mm -hmm. your brain Mm -hmm. when you're going through each of those three phases that you talked about and so then if you know because we think about disease processes as it relates to like breaking your arm so you have a bone that is not where it should be anymore, right? Mm-hmm. It's cracked, it's done, whatever. We put a cast on it to mend it, to put it back into the place that it that it should be. I think similarly to when we're talking about alcohol use disorder, substance use disorders more broadly, is that you are needing to rework the wiring in your brain to get it back to a place where it's functioning as it should. Mm-hmm. You have a have to have a cast on for six, eight, 12 weeks, depending on how bad the break is. These things take a lot of time mm-hmm. to to recalibrate so thinking on that kind of pathway going forward how long because again we're getting in the weeds here how long does it take for somebody's neural pathways to rewire in that mm-hmm. kind of way and then working backward once they're done how do we undo them right and you know that's that's um that's a struggle we're still trying to understand, <laughs> okay. you know. Um, wish we could, you know, give a timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we do know is some of these changes are chronic. Mm. Some of these changes may not reverse back ever. Um, and that's why it's a chronic disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so the simple things um, like the reward pathway might start to, you know, not work over time uh, after a given period of, you know, abstinence. Um, but some of the downstream changes that have already taken place might take six months to one year to even get reversed. And that's mm-hmm. what they, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, keep keeping the sobriety long enough so mm-hmm. that you start to not have those negative patterns of behaviors, mm-hmm. um, that is very important. The mm-hmm. longer you stay sober, the better the chance that you'll keep maintaining that sobriety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is no, you know, a number that I can give you, okay. but mm-hmm. this is what you need to mm-hmm. wait until before your brain is reversed completely. Yeah, right, right. Well, and I think, but I think you did answer the question, right? That it is, it is a longer process and mm-hmm. that there is, you know, the, the, that it's going to take time. Because I think oftentimes in the fo- the experiences and exposures I've had to folks who are working through this process, oftentimes families are like, well, just stop and then get better, right? But the, the, they're more thinking about this in terms of changes in our neural pathways. Those are, it took time to get there and it's going to take time to get back out of those again. Mm-hmm. Um, and often because of, you know, our physiological structure, sometimes we can't fix all of those things, but we can get back to a, a good place and, and have tools to move forward from there. On the family note, I have a question, and I don't know if we have answers to this, but are genetics at play when it comes to substance use disorder or alcohol in general of, is someone more susceptible? Can they be passed down? Like, is there a factor in that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we already know that. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, genetic susceptibility, and um, you know, there if you're fa- if you have a family history, you're at a higher risk of developing mm-hmm. a substance use disorder. Um, so it, it does get passed down. At the same time, uh, it, that's not the only 
mm-hmm. piece. Uh, you know, it's just one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Uh, the environment does play a huge role. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that could be how you were raised, you know, what you saw growing up, uh, what your mental, uh, you know, health it looks like, mm-hmm. um, you know, how your coping mechanisms are, um, access to alcohol, um, you know, how you've, you know, sort of grown up looking at it, approaching mm-hmm. at it. Um, so a lot of factors go into that, you mm-hmm. know, history of trauma can, can change things. Uh, so it's not just the genetics, but also mm-hmm. things that come along with it, the environment and, the, you know, mm-hmm. um, things that can actually move the needle one way or the other. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the Mayo Lab podcast. For more information and resources, visit themayolab.com. Now, back to the episode. I, I appreciate this conversation because we're kind of, you know, dispelling maybe some common myths that we have as a society and a community around alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder more broadly, and coming back to kind of the topic of conversation around, you know, we've talked about stigmas from an individual perspective. We've talked about the the potential stigmas that family members bring to the table as part of, you know, their interactions with the person who, who may be suffering from this condition. What are some stigmas or stereotypes or negative imagery that you have seen as part of, you know, being a member of our larger community, right? That as someone with your expertise and, and working with the community of patients that you work with, that you want to call out and say like, look, these are really problematic and we need to be thinking about these, whatever they are, in a different kind of way as we advance this conversation? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of, um, you know, stigma associated with just being uh, an addict, Mm -hmm. right? And um, there's a lot more pejorative terms that people use. And, uh, you know, it's not just with alcohol, with any Mm -hmm. substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, to be fair, uh, you know, what does happen is... uh, the substance use does come with a lot of negative consequences too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who are using substances do f- end up, you know, making mistakes or doing certain behaviors that might place um, them in the negative bucket uh, of how people view mm-hmm. people in a community. Uh, so that can become challenging. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe getting DUIs, maybe m- making poor judgments um, can land you into situations that may not be um, looked at favorably mm-hmm. in the community. Um, so there's always a challenge. Um, at the same time, I, I think the less we use pejorative terms mm-hmm. um, and the more we see this as a chronic disease and be able to have some empathy for those people uh, who are suffering and struggling, mm-hmm. I think will help us um, find the right path for those people and not just look at it from um, a law enforcement perspective mm. or from, um, you know, uh, they're, they're just not good enough people. Mm-hmm. You know, these are just people out in the community who are normal folks who have fallen into this trap. And over time, it doesn't, it's not just about choosing to do, to use a substance. It's, it's more about the disease driving this mm-hmm. uh, repeatedly. And we need to help those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, I think education does play a huge role in mm-hmm. uh, how we change minds and how we uh, show that there are treatments that are actually work and they mm-hmm. act, they're effective in helping reduce uh, the risk of, you know, relapsing or maintaining the sobriety long term. Mm-hmm. And once we are able to communicate that on a bigger basis um, using, you know, tools we have, you know, Mm -hmm. be it advertising, be it, um, you know, something that we do in primary care clinics. Mm -hmm. And this way it will become normal for Mm -hmm. people to get help and be able to help other people get help. Mm -hmm. 
And I think I wonder if you might walk through thinking of because one of the things we want to leave our listeners with this season is like practical things you can do right away right mm-hmm. and so I would be curious to know if you're working with a patient and their family to what are some of the practical things that you're working with either the patient or their family member to educate them around what you're talking about here what are things that you know how do you dispel those long-standing myths that we have how do you how do you practice empathy in this space right because I think that's a term that get you that gets used an awful lot but it's not really well understood or well applied mm-hmm. oftentimes, right? So how do we do some of those things in our engagement with with a person who might be struggling with something like this? Right. Um, so, you know, certainly if you have a family member who's using, I think starting a conversation, the first mm-hmm. thing is more important um, than actually um, telling them what to do because that's never that never works. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first step would be to uh, ask if they are struggling with something and mm-hmm. if they need help mm-hmm. and trying to understand, you know, how much much uh, is their struggle and if they are you know even understanding that they themselves are going through a problem because mm-hmm. if the patient is not ready to get help you right. know we talked about that mm-hmm. you know a few minutes ago mm-hmm. uh, it is uh, very hard to get p- people mm-hmm. to change so uh, identifying where they are in their recovery if they're even ready to make a change mm-hmm. uh, is a good place to start mm-hmm. and then um, working with your doctor mm-hmm. yeah I think that's the first step is to um, you know, be very transparent about your struggles and your issues and getting the right help, um, be it from the doctor or from the community. If Mm -hmm. you already know uh, a rehab or a place that you know can help with alcohol use, that would be a great place Mm -hmm. to start. What would you say to those family members and communities or close support communities that they have someone that's maybe gone to treatment multiple times, has tried recovery and relapsed, and this person that they're working with just doesn't seem to quote unquote, want to get help, how do Mm -hmm. you, what would you, what advice would you give to those people that are just like kind of at the end of the rope of we've, we've tried. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, uh, those are the most challenging, Mm -hmm. you know, situations, unfortunately. Um, We, we certainly, you know, um, struggle the most with folks who are, who are not ready to make a change or they just don't feel that they have a problem. Um, The best thing we tell the family members is to, you know, just, provide the support, mm-hmm. make sure you're not enabling them because that can be a fine line. Um, and a lot of times, um, you know, you pity the person who's going through this and let them continue the behaviors they're doing. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand that you don't want to enable them, but at the same time, you want to make sure they they are able to realize that mm-hmm. they need help. Mm-hmm. So you can, you, can, um, you can become a crutch for them and help them get where they need to go, um, but certainly not become part of the addiction and the problem mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, understanding that is very important. And that's where the education and, and getting the mm-hmm. right help is important. Mm-hmm. I want to dive into a little bit, circling back to the treatment aspect of this. What mm-hmm. are some specific things that go on in treatment, maybe for those that have never been in there, have someone that is away at treatment right now? Mm-hmm. What What's actually happening when they are in, recover, in a rehab or doing treatment? Sure. Um, treatment can, um, you know, encompass a lot of different, uh, you know, uh, uh, things, including um, how you want to stop drinking first. And the f- stopping or quitting alcohol is the first step. 
Uh, and that can happen either, you know, with a detox or going to just a regular clinic and getting an outpatient detoxification done. Uh, the second step is to maintaining that sobriety once you've achieved that sobriety. Um, and that can happen in, in the community, in sober mm-hmm. livings. Um, you can still go to another 30-day rehabs and achieve that long term. Um, so it can look different for different people because mm-hmm. people are different places in their recoveries. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think the approach should be to to understanding where they are and helping them from that standpoint onwards. Um, if they're still actively drinking, the first step obviously is to work with them to see how they can cut down or stop. Mm-hmm. Harm reduction is something we don't talk much about, uh, you know, especially in alcohol use. Um, but there are times where even that can help. Um, and that might simply look like you know, advi- the doctor advising the patient to keep drinking, but at a lower levels and try to cutting down over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way it keeps the bond of the doctor-patient relationship going at the same time they're still engaged in treatment. So you're not losing that patient, um, but they're still in treatment. Um, although it might take a longer time to get to the goal, um, but that's just one way to do it. And I think that I think you you hit on a really kind of key phrase, this idea of harm reduction, right? And it's kind of in certain circles, it's become a little taboo, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it's, it gets associated with things that I now understand that, that their stigma, right? It's related mm-hmm. to stigma, this idea that well, you should just be able to stop. And if you have a substance use disorder or have an addiction, you are a bad person, you have failed as a human being, those ideas get conflated in that harm reduction field. And so how do we start to take take this term that has become loaded and under and reorient our thinking to what you just went through this idea that okay well so we may not be ready to quit but a reduction is still a reduction and I still can have that conversation with my patient and have them in kind of my fold so to speak to get them to a better place how do we start untangling that mess that we have created in that world you know uh, it's pretty much what it is what you just mentioned it's 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 a mess right um but um, I, I think what, as physicians and as uh, providers, uh, it's always a struggle to, um, you know, override the autonomy of the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first thing, right? Do no harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why uh, when you, you talk to a patient and you're trying to help them get to their goals, you want to uh, make, make sure you understand what the patient wants. Mm-hmm. What are their goals? Mm-hmm. If they do not want to quit completely mm-hmm. and they want to keep drinking socially, we cannot push them to become completely abstinent. Um, So it's always a struggle as to what the patient wants to do and how we want to approach it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, if the patient wants to quit, but they're having a struggle, just being more authoritative and telling them what to do never works. So at that point, they can easily choose not to come back. Mm -hmm. Um, So the best next step is to be able to keep that connection and be, be part of their support system and helping them see or realize that, you know, what they're doing may not be in their best interest Mm -hmm. and help guide them to that eventual goal. Mm -hmm. And that's where harm reduction comes in. Um, The word might be loaded, but at the same time, you know, it's kind of self-explanatory. We're just reducing the Mm -hmm. harm for Mm -hmm. the patient. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it better to keep drinking the way they're drinking and get no help versus, you know, continue to work on the patient, even right. if it takes six months to get to that goal. Right. And I think what for folks that were have been listening to this episode so far, you talked initially about this idea of motivational interviewing. And that's really what you're, you're walking us through is the process of mm-hmm. going through a motivational interviewing. And so for those who are listening who may not have heard of that term before, do you have a more formal definition that you can provide so that folks are kind of connecting all those dots? Because you've 
walk through the steps very beautifully, but maybe we don't have that definition to land our feet on yet. Well, um, I'm not sure I can tell the official definition because, <laughs> uh, again, you know, this is more an approach uh, mm-hmm. than anything else. And, um, you know, what, we've been using this in the substance use field for a long time now. And, um, you know, the main, uh, you know, uh, four steps we use are, you know, being able to have that open conversation mm-hmm. with the patient, providing patient the autonomy to make decisions, uh, be that collaborative, uh, you know, having that collaborative approach uh, with the patient and be able to elicit information without being, um, you know, judgmental. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- that's the main approach for motivational interviewing. And this is not just for substance use disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, this approach can be used in any chronic disease mm-hmm. model. And that's where this whole idea comes in that addiction is not just an issue of willpower. It's just like any other chronic diseases. Right. Right. Yeah, the first time I ever got exposed to the idea of motivational interviewing was actually in the diabetes self-management mm-hmm. support field, right, is walking people through making changes related to diet and exercise and all of those things that we know we need to deal with if we have a diagnosis of diabetes or prediabetes or what have you. Um, And on the outside looking in, four steps don't seem super complicated, but one of the things that you talked about is eliciting information in a non-judgmental way, which I think also gets back to your comments earlier around those conversations that families start with each other if you're recognizing that maybe somebody in your circle is struggling. And so how do you as a provider work through the process of knowing somebody comes to your door, you know they have something going on. They're maybe not ready yet to have that conversation or make any of those changes, but to not shake them and be like, what is wrong with you? You, need, you This is a bad thing. How do you, how do you quell that knee-jerk reaction of trying to solve the problem for them so that you can have that ongoing conversation. Right. Well, that's a great question. And, you know, I'll go back to the uh, the word autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the folks who are struggling have gone through so many stages where their autonomy was taken away. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the main ways uh, to give patients the self-esteem mm-hmm. that they need and deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to recognize that you know, they make their own choices and decisions, even if that means they might continue drinking for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we as providers, and especially in addiction arena, um, recognize is that we need to uh, hold hands and not shake them, mm-hmm. right? So we need to walk with them in their path of recovery. Mm-hmm. So uh, when patient comes in and they do not feel that they have a problem, mm-hmm. we're not rejecting uh, the idea that they came in for a wrong reason. We say that we are actually their support system. We're Mm -hmm. always here. Mm -hmm. Uh, They may not recognize that they need help right now, but at some point, if they do need the help, we will be here. Mm -hmm. Um, Not to say that we definitely provide some psychoeducation. You know, Mm. we definitely let them know about, you know, outcomes and how if they keep drinking, it may not be in their best interest. Um, At the same time, you know, we're always there for them Mm -hmm. and they can always seek help, you know, between the provider and the patient. Mm -hmm. So just that doctor-patient connection, Mm -hmm. making sure they're engaged in treatment, using non-judgmental terminology, not being, you know, very authoritative with the patient can go a long way in in having that self-esteem back for the patient Mm -hmm. uh, and being able to feel that, yes, they can make their own decisions. Mm For those family members and other people that are listening that maybe want to start having these conversations with people in their life, their life that they know are struggling, what do you recommend on how ways for them 
asking and working with that patient to kind of not guard or protect themselves, but not emotionally kind of take on. Because as um, providers, you guys have skills and trains trained to do this, but maybe mm-hmm. us lay people aren't, we don't have those. So what, what do you recommend on how to kind of be supportive, but also not like take on that emotional load? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that is challenging and, you know, not having that training to even, you know, know what to say mm-hmm. can be, can be very difficult. Um, and, and I think when we started this conversation, you know, a few minutes ago, we, we mentioned about, um, you know, I mentioned about the struggles, uh, you know, the family members can mm-hmm. have because of lack of education or yeah. even understanding mm-hmm. what substance use disorder means. So I, I think the best place to start, and we tell this to the patients all the time and the family members all the time, is to continue to explore and keep the communication channels open. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you want to be on the side you know, all the time for the patient and be, be a support system. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should have your ears open if they want to, you know, say something, even if it's bad, you know, just listen and see mm-hmm. how you can provide that support that they need. Um, you know, being authoritative or telling them what to do may not work all mm-hmm. the time, but maybe that's an approach. Sometimes you, it might be necessary to show them the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you might want to suggest treatment if you see that the patient is declining mm-hmm. um, ultimately the choice is you know the, the patients mm-hmm. uh, but certainly being invested in their recovery mm-hmm. um, can and keeping the communication channels open yeah. uh, can go a long way yeah and I think moving out kind of one more sphere up to the communities of mm-hmm. how can we move forward with our communities and equip them and us as a you know holding hands like you said mm-hmm. how do we start doing that practically Right. You know, uh, again, it's always challenging uh, with, you know, uh, the stigma associated with, Mm -hmm. you know, substance use disorders and alcohol use. Um, I I think the best approach would be to, you know, having um, places where patients can come and talk uh, freely without being judged, Um, you know, having, you know, education camps or, you know, maybe starting at at local, you know, ground level at churches, Mm -hmm. having that conversations. And we already see that, you know, Mm -hmm. Alcohol Anonymous meetings. Meetings happen all the time in so many churches around, mm-hmm. you know, places. And those could be, you know, grounds where these kind of conversations can start and mm-hmm. provide sort of a hub where people can come and get information mm-hmm. and get help. And even family members, they can go and sit in mm-hmm. and learn how and what to do in these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the last question I had for you around this, because I think we've covered a lot of amazing ground today, is, you know, obviously you knew we were coming. We asked you to be part of this. You probably gave some thought to what we were going to talk about today. Is there something that you thought we were going to be talking about today that we haven't covered that you wanted to share with our listeners? Well, um, I think I think we had a good discussion about stigma. It's something that we don't talk about much. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, we do, but in a, in a, in a different sense. Um, it's always uh, towards the community. But I think yeah, we touched on the patient stigma as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I hope that people understand that there's help available. There's treatments, scientific evidence-based treatments available. Um, and they do work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a matter of just getting the right help and getting the referral to treatment that might be necessary. Um, so, uh, again, I would like to say that or finish with uh, that this is a chronic medical disease. Mm-hmm. It's not just an issue of willpower. And um, there is treatment available. And I encourage people to go out and get help and uh, family members to continue to work and keep the communication channels open with the patients. Those are all amazing points. Thank you so much for making the time. Um, if you all didn't catch the beginning of this, 
Dr. B is an incredibly busy person. And so we're really grateful that you took a few minutes out of your busy day to come and talk with us. Um, and we hope to have you all back listening to our next episode. Um, and let us know, what are you, what are you, what did you learn from today's episode? I know I certainly learned a lot of really great tidbits. Let us know what those little tidbits are and we can start spreading that information and getting the word out into, into the hands of more people around our communities so that we can start taking back um, and, and chipping away at that stigma. Thank you so much. And we'll see you here next time. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mayo Lab Podcast. The Mayo Lab Podcast is produced by Dr. Natasha Dieter, Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, Slade Lewis, and Hannah Finch. This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones, and our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab Podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. For more information on the Mayo Lab podcast, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at the Mayo Lab. If you enjoyed listening to the Mayo Lab podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, and their guests on the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters related to his or her health or the health of a child.